This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Mirko. And I'm Mr. Jim Moon. And we're going to be talking about a 1907 novella called uh, The Willows by Algernon Blackwood. I think it's 1907. Yes, that's what I found. Yes, yeah. So I can't exactly remember how we we ended up choosing this one, but I've just been reading about it and I guess writing about it a little bit. But uh, I didn't realize how big Algernon Blackwood's sort of writing career is. It, it was really long, and he had he had a television show. Did you know that? I know. Yeah, yes, in the yeah. 50s. Did you, uh, Mr. Jim, you're not that old, right? You can't tell us about it. Well, yes, he started out on radio um, doing readings of his stories and then moved to television, and um, he got the um, the epithet being known as the ghost man in British right. culture, which um, I thought he wasn't entirely pleased about. <laughs> he, was, he, was a bit, he was a bit vague, and it's kind of... He felt his stories, yes, they had ghosts and strange things in, but his idea that all his work was about the uh, the expansion uh, of consciousness. Yeah. And yeah. the extension of human personality. Um, and so to call him just the ghost man was um, jibed with his lofty ideals somewhat. Yeah, it's kind of like the way uh, some writers don't like to be classified as science fiction writers. Mm. Uh, except... Yeah, I don't think like I don't think I've read a lot of his stuff that has actual ghosts in it. Uh, they've got sort of I, I think he did do some ghost stories though, but this I don't think this one's got ghost stories in it. And that's not what I would say, but I I just think it's so cool that there would be a TV show on I think it was called Saturday Night Story, where you know you'd see a guy in a chair and he'd tell a story uh, for what half hour or whatever it is, and then he, he'd you know fade to black. And that's the end of the show. Like it's like a old fashioned audiobook or something. Very strange with a with a guy sitting in a chair telling a story. That sounds pretty amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and I think it was on for a long time. It was it was uh, on until into the fifties, so uh whenever the T V T V started up it was it was going pretty pretty well, I think. Um but I think probably the reason this story sort of percolated to the top of my list was because of its mention in uh, Supernatural Horror and Literature, the essay by Lovecraft. And uh, I've seen it argued that it is his favorite story uh, by anybody. And I think that's pretty, um, pretty interesting, especially considering... It almost nothing happens in this story. That's very Lovecraftian, right? <laughs> it is. It's an exercise in atmosphere and suggestion, and um, ah. and the action takes place entirely on an island over a course of like maybe twenty-four hours or two days or two nights or something like that. A little island. Nobody. Well, I was going to say nobody dies, but I'm not sure that's true. <laughs> At least some casualty. Yeah, there's not many characters, right? There's, there's the conflict is sort of very subtle, um, 
but you can see sort of lines that Lovecraft would, I think there's a line in there, uh, it was, it was something work. It was like brutal work or something like that. And I said, Oh, that's, that's, that's the line that Lovecraft likes to use, like ghoulish work, you know, um, a character reflecting on upon their own, their own take on what is happening. And I think you could sort of see that in Lovecraft as at least a, uh, even if he's not sort of, trying to copy Algernon Blackwood, he's at least a kindred spirit in the in the style of writing. At least mm. in this story. That's what you see if he describes um, the willows and this uh I would say cosmic horror element. It's definitely yeah. in there. Yeah. Um there's a there's a cosmic horror, there's a there's a sort of a natural horror, a horror of nature, and a few other things. Um why, why don't we uh, get somebody to outline the story, though, just so it's a little bit clearer as to what what's going on? I think I know what's going on, but I'd like to hear what somebody else thinks is happening. <laughs> Mr. Moon, do, do you... Uh, right, yeah, I'll give it a go. Do this. <clears throat> uh, narrator and his companion, the Swede, we, we never actually learn his name, which always strikes me as odd, <laughs> considering... These two have travelled the world together for many years, and he never gets his name mentioned in the story. He's just the Swede. Yeah. Um, I suspect that's a device to kind of give it a real-life travelogue feel, mm-hmm. actually. You know, it's kind of, um, well, this actually happens. So I'm not going to name the chap kind of, right. <laughs> kind of device. Um, they're travelling down the Danube River in a canoe. Um, it's the time of uh, heavy rain and big floods, and they managed to pull over onto this small little island that's uninhabited. It's really small, just covered in not even willow trees, just willow bushes mm-hmm. in this particularly lonesome expanse of the river. And the floodwaters are rising and rising, and um, they make camp for the night. However, it soon becomes apparent that it doesn't seem they're quite alone on the island. There seems to be some sort of elemental presence there. Um, after the... F- during the first night, our narrator is disturbed several times and ventures out and sees this weird vision of um, kind of spirits uh, all rising up out of the island and flowing off into the into the heavens. Uh, then later in the night, there's the sound of footsteps and pattering and the bushes seem to be moving around the tent. When they wake up the next day, they find... Um, their canoe has been holed. Uh, one of the, the, the crucial steering rudder is missing and the other paddle has been extensively damaged. And both the men kind of are very much, there's something here, but la la la, no, there isn't. It's obviously, it's our imagination. It can't be happening. No, no, no. And things get progressively worse. So by, so by the second night, the pretense has to drop and they, theorize and opine that, you know, this is some kind of shunned place where elemental forces reign and this is why it's so uninhabited, this stretch of the Danube, and they've wandered into this shunned area and now to escape, there'll have to be a sacrifice. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Now, I I think that's a pretty good summary. The only only thing I I would leave out or would add into that would be that that prior, I guess, to that first night's camp, 
uh, just as they landed on the island, they see a, I think they're gathering firewood and they see a man's body in the river. Um, and then no, they both agree suddenly that it's not a man's body, that it, it's a, a river otter, I guess, a black otter. <laughs> and then, um, as it, as it turns to go away, it looks like a man sort of again. And they, oh, they're like, they, they're both sure it's a man's body. And then, and then shortly after, very shortly after that, they see a man on a boat, um, who's gesticulating to them. Um, and then I guess on the final night or the, is it the next morning, the final morning, um, there's a, there's a body on the beach. And this body on the beach, I, I, I was wondering, is that the same guy as, as was in the river before? Or is this, uh, I, I think they describe him as a peasant, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he had a look of a peasant about him. Yes, that's um, right, yeah. And I'm, I, I was, I was trying to figure out, you know, like who this guy was. I'm, there are a couple other characters mentioned very early in the story, uh, sort of setting, setting the scene as to how they got to this island. There's a woman in a, a shop. I think there's also a, a Austrian officer. Is that is an Austrian officer? Some sort of military officer who uh, tells them not to go down the river this time yeah. of year. It's too dangerous. Mm-hmm. It's the the wind is going to be too strong. You might be left high and dry. You, you know the 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 paths are unnavigable because the the river might end in places that that. Uh, suddenly the water's gone. So it, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty interesting setup, but it's, I don't think it's ghosts at all. What do you guys think? What, what, what's going on? You said element, ele- elemental things, right? Well, yeah, it's kind of ghosts kind of imply these spirits of former humans, whereas what we have in this story is, Something that <clears throat> not only isn't formally human, it was never human in the first place. Mm-hmm. You know, there's kind of, it's literally something from, an, you know, they theorized that this is kind of, you know, the origin of kind of, of the most primitive sort of nature gods, this kind of presence, or, or it's mm. some kind of point where two dimensions are overlapping. Yeah. Yeah, I'd like to um, to kick in here just what Mr. Jamoon said. I was reminded of um, Hope Hodgson's House on the Borderland. Yeah, absolutely. A year, year later, and also I was um, reminded of um, the Blackstone by Robert E. Howard. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because they, yeah. he's he's going to a shun place where they, he he has these visions of um, of this ancient rides in this Asian cult which sacrifices human and whether well, this this was a thing that I I was immediately reminded of. Yeah, it certainly there there is a, a suggestion, I think, by the narrator himself, uh saying that this is a uh he I think he mentions Marcus Aurelius and, and sort of the ancient Roman borderland. Um this is a sacred, you know, river. There would have been pagan temples here. It's all, um, it's all definitely, there's definitely that feel that it could be, uh, something that people had known before or at least had respected before. But there's also, 
you know, it comes into his mind that no one, no man had been to this island before. And I thought that that was pretty interesting considering it's set in Europe, which has <laughs> been inhabited for a long time. Um, and I think there's something to be made actually out of why it was set in Europe. Um, because we do know that Algernon Blackwood, he lived in Canada. He's got another story set in Canada that's probably his most similar one to it that I know of, uh, the Wendigo. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that actually has again, uh, a, a, you know, a guy in the woods and looking up at the sky as some weird phenomena is happening. Um, so, you know, there's the Cana- it's a Canadian canoe. It's uh, he, his his Swedish friend is more like a Red Indian than any European he'd ever met. <laughs> so it, it it's interesting to me that it is set in Europe well, as opposed to being set in in North America or, he, or Canada. He, he has made a new river trip with a friend. It, but was it in? Is it in Europe? Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um The thing is that you can have two trans. Uh, you you were able to get two translations here. One of um, a publisher who also uh, publishes H.P. Lovecraft, Lord Insaney, Emma James, but he closed down this uh, this horror section. And you could have a um, a translation. With a um, a journal, uh, a voyage journal, where he describes his uh, oh his canoe trip on the Danube River, and that's very cool. I didn't get it because it's it's rare. It's very rare, and um, it's about seventy pages, um, just describing what he does. And there are some uh, pretty creepy elements in there. So I'm 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 pretty sure that he he knew what he was what he was writing and, and he, that he knew the, uh, uh, the landscape. And hmm. a German critic said that Blackwood attended a college in the Black Forest here in Germany, but I didn't find any proofs for that. But uh, the German Wikipedia entry says that Blackwood uh, has been to a college in Hungaria, Austria. Um, hmm. Let's see. This is... Uh, Königsfeld, and then uh, he w- he was there just for a year at 1885, and then 1886 he uh, he changed to Wellington College. Hmm. So I think so. The suite probably exists then, huh? What do you think? Probably could be, could be. I'd like to read that that travel log. That'd be very interesting because yeah. I know he had a pretty diverse life for you know. Unlike Lovecraft, who didn't really move around very much, Blackwood did move around a lot, I think. He, so he, Hope Hodgson and Dunsany as well. So they, Yeah, well, Hodgson, he traveled the entire world, right? They are pretty hard guys concerning, uh, compared <laughs> to, to HPL. <laughs> um, I wanted to also, I, I tweeted it earlier this week, um, the description from the PDF that I made from the appearance of this story in uh, famous fantastic mysteries. Um, I thought it was an interesting, uh, way of looking at the story. Um, it's, you know, sort of the, the editorial, um, introduction designed to make you read the story. You say, Ooh, I want to buy this magazine, you know? <laughs> so it's, it was, uh, this unknowing they strayed into a last pagan citadel and brought down upon themselves the soul chilling fury of nature's terrible dethroned gods. And I just, wow, that's, that's, is that the story I just read? I guess it is. 
It is if it's Robert E. Howard doing the publicity. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, the dethroned gods of nature. And nature, of course, is capitalized. And pagan is capitalized, too. I'm not sure why why pagan is capitalized, but it's, it's interesting. This um idea that nature's pissed off, right? You fucked up the earth almost in a certain sense. Uh, and this is our place. He says early on when he's still thinking that the river's a nice place with his, with his buddy, they're joking about how the area they're traveling through almost needs a passport and they, and they, they're trespassing and they're joking about this. But later on, that joke turns into a real sort of feeling. And, um, I mean, it seems like the, the villagers and the officer and everybody says, don't go down there. That's the only way I can figure that, that, uh, you could find an island somewhere in Europe that nobody had been to at some point. Well, the thing is, it's, you know, there are still vast expanses, particularly like in, around like the Black Forest and, you know, speaking like the southern, southern Europe, like, you know, so they mentioned the other the near, you know, what we, what we'd call like Romania and Transylvania, where there are still huge wilds, and you know mm-hmm. you have these, you know, big stretches of land where it is just rough moors and wild rivers and mountains, and it's just no good for farming. It's no good for nothing. <laughs> it looks fantastic, but no one lives there. Yeah, um, I'm thinking this stretch of the river. It's kind of. Um, I mean, in England, we have a place called the Lake District, and there's lots of uninhabited islands on the lakes there um, for similar reasons. They're just covered in in willow trees and firs and are rocky, and there's, there's no reason for anyone to even to set up with a few goats there. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, but even so, I, I think, you know, it's very reason. Uh, whenever I, I live in Canada, and whenever I go anywhere, I... I I would as a kid I would think oh maybe I'm the first person to be here but you know this continent's been inhabited for you know thousands of years and every time I learn something a little bit about the history of something it sounds like oh yeah this guy was here <laughs> and that guy was there <laughs> and no matter what river or creek or you know little hollow uh whatever peak you've got somebody's climbed it somebody's uh I mean maybe they're not living on it but you can almost always find some sort of evidence of human habitation somewhere. And the, the fact that there's nobody there now um, and hasn't been for, you know, a year or two doesn't doesn't come across because nature sort of scours it. Right. But if you start looking, you know, you can find the old tree stumps. You can find, uh, you know, evidence of, of camps and even like batons and stuff. If it's a if it's a, a cliff. Um. So it, it's there, there's this I think this thing that happens in horror literature where and I guess science fiction and a few other things where we have to keep going farther and farther to find where the ghosts are, you know, the borderlands between uh, reality and outer space and, you know, in deep caves under the earth. But uh, he, he I don't think this is exactly like about it being that no one has been here before as much as it's um this is a place where nature normally rules and they've done something wrong but i can't figure out exactly what it is they've done wrong except the way that they they talk it's like like their thoughts make the things happen but their thoughts are also being implanted 
the, the ideas that are coming from the nature around them are being like telepathically transmitted to them or something. Very, I mean, there's so much of this story that is spent just inside our narrator's head. Yeah, when, when they describe how they entered this island, yeah, I was um, somehow once again reminded of uh, um, many science fiction novels um, like astronauts entering a whole new planet and mm. knowing there was something before. Like in this, this uh, one of my favorite George R. R. Martin stories, um, where they are on this planet uh, which is only covered with fog. Mm. I don't know if you know this story, but it's very, no, very I don't creepy. Know. It sounds good though. It's I love very his creepy. science fiction. Yeah, and and there he is. Uh, there he describes that on this planet there is only fog, and there are entities named the ghosts. Nobody knows who they are, and they are finding ruins from mm. some old culture. And I think this is very, very fascinating. I was really reminded of a description entering a new planet, uh, um, first step on some alien planet. And uh, the German translation really makes you think that they are in a spaceship mm. landing there. And this is really creepy. <laughs> Now, um, I did, uh, I did actually find something that I think might unlock the story in a certain way because it's a review, not of this, um, this book, but I, I, I just grabbed the whole, uh, whole review of this other book by Algernon Blackwood that I thought was very interesting. Um, so I think it's a novel called Bright Messenger. Have you guys heard of this book? It's from 1921. No, nope. I've heard of it, but not read it. Okay. So, um, uh, it's a review of this, I think it's a novel, and um, it, it was in Fantasy and Science Fiction uh, 2002, I think, uh, an issue in 2002. Um, so this is the review, and I thought this was very interesting, because it, it seems like maybe this is not the only story where he uses the same sort of, uh, I, I don't know, approach to to the supernatural. So I'll read this here. In 1911, inspired after a visit to the Caucasus, Blackwood was able to finish Julius Lavallon, which I think is a another novel. Um, and it's also been reviewed, but I couldn't find that review. The book that described how an elemental spirit became trapped in the body of a human child. That was a pre precursor to the book Blackwood really wanted to write. Blackwood was fascinated by the concept of the diva, capital D, he believed that there was a separate evolution of, of spiritual beings that had developed alongside human evolution. These nature spirits have generally have the general name of Diva, and within them are a large range of beings, which include the sprites and fairies at one end through to planetary entities at the other. These beings control the laws of nature. They are, in effect, nature's policemen. Blackwood wanted to portray the kind of being who was half human, half elemental. Unfortunately, the First World War intervened, and he did not complete the sequel, The Bright Messenger, until 1921. Uh, in The Bright Messenger, we discover that the child of Julius Lavallon, uh, named Julian, now a young man, uh, trapped within him is the elemental spirit, which Blackwood calls NH for non-human. Though the psychologist Edward Fillory, who looks like 
who looks after Levalun. We study Levalun and try to get a glimpse of the NH. Um, so, and then it goes on to say, so that the elemental human spirits merged to create a new nature child capable of healing the world after the war. Um, I think that, doesn't that sound like what, what might be, you know, sort of this, he, it sounds like something like they're not ghosts, they're not, um, sprites in the sense of, you know, like the spirit of the river or anything. It's sort of like, it's, it's sort of richer than sort of the, I don't know, the haunted tree sort of thing. (laughs) What do you think? Think that might be what's going on in here? Oh, definitely. I mean, I think Blackwood had a big fascination with um, all things kind of paranormal and occult. Um, I mean, he did base a lot of his stories in um, theories and ideas he found in real life, sort of occult and paranormal writing. Um, so much so, both Lovecraft and M.R. James, in their critiques of him, did take him to task for overly using this uh, occultist jargon, which they felt uh-huh. lessened the fear of the unknown and and made it into something else. Um, and certainly this is kind of idea of the... Um, he's talking about, about being a whole separate spiritual uh, continuum to ours, going down to small little things like sprites that look after fairies to huge things that set the planets in motions. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is an old, <clears throat> it is like an old idea. It's the, they used to call it the, the chain of being. Um, and there's a whole branch of um, esoteric philosophy called Neoplatonism that's devoted to this idea. And the idea is that man can never behold the ultimate godhead in its purest form, because as the Greek myths and other ancient legends tell us, if you encounter a god, <laughs> the the sheer power of it will destroy you. And hence, there's all these spirits that act as intermediaries between the material world and the spiritual world. And certainly, I think there is kind of that sort of cosmology that filters through into a lot of Blackwood's writings. And I mean, here we do, you know, you just sort of say in the willows that, you know, this, these possibly are kind of what people have misapprehended as nature spirits and gods, but actually mm-hmm. they're something completely other. Mm-hmm. So how is it that these two dudes, I mean, what did they do that made the, the nature's policemen or, or whatever? I, I don't think that they did anything particularly bad, did they? Um, it's just, it's what the idea of, you know, to go back to like the Druids um, had like sacred groves and that if you weren't a Druid, right. you were for the chop if you went in. <laughs> Um, and also, you know, you have that in uh, Grecian and um, Romanic kind of religions, you have the idea of sacred spaces. <clears throat> and further than that, in like later on in folklore, I mean, in the British Isles, there are lots of places that have the word devil in the title. And huh. these are places, um, whether it be woods or stretches of river or hills, that have got a reputation for odd things happen there. And so they get a name like, like you know, the Devil's Ring or the Devil's Dyke, and people stay away from them. <laughs> yeah. uh, the, the way you're talking, it makes me think of that TV show that I heard you talk about and then found uh, Children of the Stones. 
where there's just some sort of weird thing happening there. And I think that one's a little, a little more cosmic oriented than it is tree oriented, but, um, it just gives you a real sense of, uh, there's a, there's a background and a story that it's all going on before the, the characters even involved in it. And then, and then uh, I thought that was, yeah, that was pretty interesting. So I say in the willows that their, their crime as such is, Showing um, up. Well, it's the fact that they, they stay in the place. And as it's sort of towards the end of the story, they kind of theorize that the entities can't actually visibly see them or right. apprehend them through physical senses, but it's their thoughts and emotions that they can sense. And that's where the overlap is. Of It's like an idea that, you know, there's a material part of man, but the consciousness is in this particular area, it's impinging onto their level of, uh, in, onto their dimension. And it's, you know, they can't see the men physically because they're in another dimension, but the entities can hear their thoughts. Yeah, and I guess if, if, if they were thinking, haha, we're trespassing, um, the, the, the tree entities or whatever it is that are inhabiting that region, would be saying, hey, they're trespassing. <laughs> uh, don't joke about trespassing, because I think the Swede is like, he's very practical, right? He never, he, he, he never goes too far away from the, the natural, natural, um, uh, I don't know, reaction to what he's seeing. He never denies what happened or what is happening. When, when uh, our narrator finds out that the food's gone missing, um, th- he said, oh, I never bought that loaf of bread I bought. <laughs> um, what? <laughs> He's trying so hard to make everything fit into his, his, uh, his previous reality. Um, and, the, and the Swede, I guess, representing the... He's mentioned twice as being a, a competent, as the competent, most competent man I've met on a river uh, since a Red Indian or something. It's always he's always compared to you know sort of this uh, natural uh, I, what are they noble savage I guess who I guess perceives the reality as it is which is the spiritual reality of the of the place slightly better and yet at the end um, he I think he's he falls even more under the sway of whatever phenomenon's happening doesn't he well yes he's almost compelled to throw himself into the river to become the sacrifice in either he's being invaded and possessed by these entities and in a kind of a, a, a fashion that reminds me somewhat of um, Maupassant's The Hauler. Mm, yes, um, I thought of that too. Or whether it is he's just been reduced to a state of superstitious panic that he just thinks they want a sacrifice, I'll do it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, or even to join with them. Yeah, so so instead at the last moment we he's not sacrificed. He doesn't sacrifice himself and we get we get the the man on the beach, right? And where did this peasant come from? I I thought I thought that maybe it was a manifestation at first. I thought it was a manifestation of of the um of the willow beings, you know? I thought it. I thought maybe when they they turned him over, it was going to look like uh, our narrator or the Swede. But that I don't think that's the impression we get. And instead, we get this this 
I think, which is probably the most hauntingly interesting, um, unexplained phenomena I've ever heard of in a, in a story like this, which is the, the conical holes, right? There's these conical holes, like I, I think like a cheese grater or something and come down to the earth and it digs holes in the, in the sand and then it digs holes in the man. Yeah. Mm. What the hell is that? <laughs> yeah, this creature, I guess, uh, I was just imagining once again something Lovecraftian. A thing it's, with. It's like it doesn't enter the dimension fully, it can only get in there in a. Yes. A partially, partial way. I also thought of the chupacabra, you know, uh, oh, the, yeah. the, the, what's, goat sucker or whatever it is of Mexico that mutilates animals. And I was thinking, well, what? But there are these neat little conical holes in the in the surface of the the beach, right in the sand, uh, and in the man himself. Yeah. And what the hell is that? It's it's like it's somehow reaching into our reality and taking the taking that substance away. Is it aliens? They're sampling us from from a distance using a a sampling ray. That <laughs> what the hell is that? Well, it's when they first mention the holes in the story, he mentions little round depressions. And mm. my first thought, these were like weird footprints. Mm-hmm. Um, and these holes actually increasing size as uh, the uh, phenomena gets stronger into the second night. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the end, it's like when there's holes in the man, it's kind of, oh, well, they're not footprints. It's something more sinister. It's uh, <laughs> fingerprints or something. Yeah. It's, it's something... It's something very strange. And because it's never explained, um, it, I think that's the haunting, right? Like, it's, it's like the jaws, you know, you know, you don't know what it is that's killing everybody under the water. Um, and you never see the shark and you're not even sure it is a shark. You have no idea what's going on. And the shark isn't leaving bites in the people as much as little conical holes. It's a very strange thing that's happening. I, I, I just, I think then that's gotta be the fact that it's never explained and it, it seems like it's, it's thought, thought, well thought through that it's gotta be one of the reasons this story is so powerful. Even though, again, like almost nothing happens. They talk about how they got to the island. They get to the island. They gather some firewood. They put up their tent. They make breakfast in the morning and they fix their canoe. And then that's the end of the story. <laughs> Yeah, it's just like dual survival. Mm-hmm. Some some guy, two guys left out in the wilderness, and then they have to manage to get back. <laughs> I've got I've got some quotes that I I I found many many quotes inside the story that I liked, um, and I wanted to uh, just throw some out there. One of them one of them um, stood out to me more than once as being good, but I found this one just now. Uh, uh, having rid himself of the indigestible morsel, he he lay quietly for a time, but he had so admirably admirably expressed my feeling that it was a relief to have so, to have the thought out and to have confined it by the limitation of words from the dangerous wandering to and fro in the mind. But that was very interesting. But this this it continues. It, it's a, you could read the story and just say, wow, every line's interesting. The solitude of that Danube camping place. Can I ever forget it? The feeling of being utterly alone on an empty planet. I thought, 
Yeah, so that that's the that's the sort of feeling of the time that some writers were getting, like Hodgson, and um, and I guess Blackwood. But pla- the planet theme, the cosmic horror theme, comes again. And I thought this was this is the second one when you do a search for planet inside the text, you find it's, it's mentioned twice. So here's the second one: the flood indeed had no terrors for us. We could get off at ten minutes' notice. And there, and the more water, the better we liked it. It meant an increasing current and the obliteration of the treacherous shingle beds that so often threatened to tear the bottom out of our canoe. And I, I thought that that was interesting too, because they have this canoe problem. That doesn't seem like it's a conical hole. So I, I was thinking maybe there's more than one malicious entity at work, uh, to, to explain what different problems they have. But, um, I wanted to keep reading here. Contrary to our expectations, the wind did not go down with the sun. It seemed to increase with the darkness, howling overhead and shaking the willows round us like straws. Curious sounds accompanied it sometimes, like the explosions of heavy guns, and it fell upon the water and the island in giant flat blows of immense power. It made me think the se- of the sounds a planet must make could we only hear it driving along through space? And I'm like, wow. <laughs> wow, you're blowing my mind here. Hmm. <clears throat> His language is absolutely uh, beautiful in this story. The way he describes the landscape and the, mm-hmm. imbues it with this character. As I say, we, we don't have a villain or a monster or anything with a name or a face. Mm-hmm. But the willows, the area as itself, fulfills that role. Mm-hmm. It's um, also interesting, I thought, um, when I was reading this story again this week, I was thinking, <clears throat> it reminds me of a bit of Tolkien. You know, the um, there's a part of Tolkien in which uh, they never adapt for movies, or, or um, I don't think it's even in the audio drama, when they go through the old forest, Old Man Willow. Yes. Yeah, and they stop at the the Withy Windle. They they follow the Withy Windle, the river, through the forest. And this has been a forest that uh, the hobbits have been into before, uh, in the previous generations. And they they had a bonfire and burned a lot of the trees down because they they were evil. I thought that was pretty interesting. <laughs> And um, and then there's the point in the story in which uh, willows are mentioned many times. Um, uh, I, uh, if I bring up my... I tweeted it, actually, earlier this week. There's a quote uh, from The Hobbit that I found. If I get this to come up. And um, I, thought it was, I thought it was very interesting because I believe uh, Tolkien was well familiar with Blackwood. Um, there's some evidence that he... He's in, I think, a book about the Lord of the Rings, um, uh, the place names that he wrote. Um, he mentions uh, a couple of Blackwood things, not uh, specifically the Willows, but it seems pretty likely that he had read it. Uh, let's see if I can get it to come up here. Right. Uh, oh, right, here it is. In the midst of, uh, this is from uh, the old forest, uh, right before they they find Old Man Willow. Uh, 
In the midst of it there wound lazily a dark river of brown water, bordered with ancient willows, arched over with willows, blocked with fallen willows, and flecked with thousands of faded willow leaves. Are we getting a sense of willows? (laughs) (laughs) Um, and, And that, the fact that there's willows, willows everywhere... Um, and then there's this evil tree. I, that's a very Tolkien-esque way of doing the same thing, right? He embodies it with a tree that's evil. And why is the tree evil? Well, it's twisted and gnarled and d- doesn't like hobbits, right? It tries to eat one of them. I can't remember, maybe more than one of them. And and then I think it's interesting that in that same scene that is, again, always left out of any adaptations what exactly happens is they're not saved by uh, themselves. They're not saved by thinking different thoughts. They're saved by another sort of nature spirit that is embodied, right? Mm-hmm. And that's Tom Bombadil. Tom Bombadil, <laughs> who, who is like the, the totally unadaptable character that you'll never see in, a, in any, <laughs> anything because he's, it, it, when, when you read that novel, uh, or I guess, trilogy of novel, whatever it is, The Lord of the Rings, he is the one character that sort of doesn't fit, right? That whole sequence with him and Goldberry, it's like he took some sort of poem that he was writing and sort of shoehorned it into this this scene. Tom Bombadil's a fascinating character, but he, he makes no sense sort of in the uh, in the Tolkien world of of Middle-earth. He seems like a holdback from a previous age. Oh, definitely. And he's not interested in the ring at all. Not in, not he can he can wield it. Doesn't have the effect on him that it does on other things. He he he, he gathers flowers all day like a hippie or something, and <laughs> it's about his girlfriend Goldberry uh, a lot. <laughs> and, and she seems to be kind of a river spirit, if I yeah. Rightly, of the kind of you know. I, I don't know what he's supposed to be exactly, but he's certainly some sort of elemental force. Uh, he doesn't die. I don't think he, he has immense power, but it's not power of muscle or, you know, lightning bolt or anything like that. It's more like, um, it's more like he's a, a god on vacation or something. Well, this is it. He puts old man Willow to sleep by, um, singing. Mm-hmm. And, that's why old Tom's left out of adaptations, because he's got a bloody song for everything. Yes, he does. But it's kind of, you get the impression he's kind of like the spirit of the, the good earth, the good gardener, and, um, mm-hmm. you know, he knows the songs that were sung to create Middle Earth. Mm-hmm. But he's, he's, he's not like, uh, like if you go deep into the Silmarillion, you can find all sorts of um, very strange... Uh, you know, explanations as to who Gandalf is and uh, all the, you know, the the background for how Middle-earth got to be the way it was in in uh, the Third Age, I guess. But uh, even so, he, he, he's, he's, he's not a normal character. Uh, but I just think it's interesting that um, it seems like this sort of idea, and it's not just um, Tolkien, and it's not just even Algernon Blackwood, uh, if you look up willows on Wikipedia as, you know, the species, uh, almost every culture has some sort of, uh, sort of attachment to willow trees in some sort of way, even if it's just, you know, medicinal or something like that. But 
there is a sense that they are sort of special kind of trees. Um, and they do move almost seemingly without the wind, right? They're good at picking up the wind and bending with the wind. Mm. Um, so I, I thought, I thought that was worth pu- pulling out and thinking about the, the Tolkien connection. Well, well the, idea other, of, the idea of good sorry. and bad spirits in the landscape. I mean, our narrator on the first night, he has that strange vision of these bronze, skinned figures all rising up in a great column out of the trees and mm-hmm. into the sky. And uh, just thinking about this now, uh, I thought, are they different entities to the whatever leaves the funnel-shaped marks? And they're the the good spirits of the place leaving, kind of, uh-oh, mm-hmm. they've woken them up, we're out of here. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that, I, I think there must be more than one sort of force involved, just given the the, I mean, there's, they're stealing their food. That sounds like an animal, not like a person. You know, that's why you hang your your food up in a tree so that the animals can't get to it. Well, that kind of thing it reminds me of traditional kind of fairy mischief. I mean, you know, fairies aren't like in folklore aren't like the Disney little flitty things that are very nice and grant you wishes. They're ugly, twisted, cruel, demented things that fuck with you. They cause mm-hmm. havoc, you know what I mean? They steal things, they break things. Um, they, 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 you know, they're actually, most, you read actually lots of proper fairy folklore, you think, Jesus, these things are terrifying. You know, they are really primal, elemental things that are capricious and uh, you don't want to mess about with. But, well, what, what about their their paddle? Remember, yeah. there's the paddle that's stolen. Mm. I get that. But then there's the paddle that's turned into almost like a, it's almost like they got sandpaper, bandsaw, you know, sort of some sanding machine and sanded it down so that it's just like paper thin. What the hell's going on with that? And the canoe is destroyed too, so this was a sophisticated attack, perhaps. Well, I think the canoe, though, it, it was like they could go out in it and if they didn't notice that there was that crack, they'd just, they'd sink and drown, right? Um, but the, 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 the paddle, I mean, they, they just, you know, cut a hole into the bottom of the canoe. But the paddle is, it's described as being like paper thin, I think is the word for it. And it used to be a full size, you know, regular paddle, but it's sort of been sanded. And, and, and the explanation is we must have done it. (laughs) (laughs) Because who else would have done it? Well, I'd say, I think it's one of those things is kind of, it's acts of, subterfuge and deliberate sabotage so that if if the canoe doesn't get them the loss of the paddle certainly will mm-hmm. um and they'll both end up dying in the river and they'll get their sacrifices but right. the, but they're doing it by stealth um it's one of those things i think it's, it's partly a plot device on blackwood's part to suggest that there is intelligence here <laughs> it's, it's not just a big beast or a spirit monster going raw. It's it's something that's thought about things to an extent and understands people to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. But so I, I assume that there must be two forces there: the one who delivers the sacrifice and the other one who takes the sacrifice. Right? Yeah, yeah. It, yeah. it could be that there's another guy up that river. You know, who be, because they're in the because, same situation. Because if you if you are used to get a sacrifice, 
if someone sacrifices to you, you don't have to to look after the sacrifice yourself. Priests are supposed to do it. Mm. So someone oh. someone is sabotaging their their stuff, and something is waiting for its sacrifice. Right. Okay. So they're working to yeah, they're mm. working together. Could be. Could be. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Uh, is is the Danube really scary? I've never been to the Danube. <laughs> No, I don't think so. No, <laughs> not anymore. Not anymore. Okay. Oh, good. I do have a slight. Obviously, I've got a slight criticism of the story. There's a couple of places where he does repeat himself unnecessarily, yeah. uh, particularly at the climax, where um, the the kind of psychic attack is reaching a pitch, and he sort of stumbles back onto a bush and falls, and the Swede grabs mm. him. Um, and he said, you know, he says, I learned later that the, it was, you know, and guessed that it was the pain that saved me in that instant. And the Swede, mm-hmm. as he grappled, fell over and momentarily knocked himself out. And that was what saved him. Mm-hmm. And then two paragraphs later, they have some dialogue repeating that. Mm-hmm. And I did just think, man, where was your editor? <laughs> well, he's the, he's, he's editing himself, I'm pretty yeah. sure. Yeah, it really would have been at that. Uh, in that but that's kind of, I think that's kind of the way. Um, uh, when you're when you're a, a teller of tales like out loud, mm-hmm. you do tend to repeat yourself quite a bit, um, so that you can remember where you were. It doesn't spoil the story, but it did. This, no. On this particular rereading, it did just. Leap out at me. Mainly because I've been doing a lot of editing myself this week. <laughs> I also recently read another. No- I'd read a novel. Had a novel for review, and I had similar like repetitions. And I was like, "Oh man, where was the, the editor was asleep on the job on this one?" <laughs> have you Have you guys read the Wendigo? I I've read it. I think it's pretty interesting. It's not. I don't think it's quite as powerful as this story, but it's pretty interesting. Yes, I've I'd read love- the Wendigo. Mm. What did you say, Marco? I read it a long time ago in a uh, uh, Lovecraft-related uh, anthology from right. from his um, uh, from the 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 authors he mentions in the supernatural horror and literature. And actually, I, I just remember some kind of feeling, but not the the story itself. You know, yeah. the atmosphere. This this is interesting. It's, it's very simpler. Yeah. That's right. I think there's more character. I think there's more characters. I think there's three or four characters, um, and there is a sort of a sacrifice in the same way. Um, but I think it's one of the characters who was with them on this expedition that they're they're on. But uh, the the phenomenon that's the causes it, the Wendigo itself, it's not like the Wendigos I normally thought of. But I, I think it's probably more traditional uh, for. For the real ones, I'm not sure, but it's 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 kind of kind of got that same feeling of um, uh, you didn't really do anything wrong except show up. <laughs> uh, and there's this huge ravening nature spirit in the Blackwood story that carries people off and takes them quote unquote traveling. Yeah, in a, and a horrendous, mind blowing way. Is, are you are you talking about a different story? Uh, no, no, it doesn't, 
isn't the climax of the Wendigo short story that one of their party is missing and it turns out he was carried off by the Wendigo and yeah. then dumped he's and he's absolutely right. gibbering and uh, completely yeah. broken. Yeah, he's he's been transformed in a certain way. Um, but yeah, I think I think there it's it's a it's a nice nice comparison between the two. Hmm. Uh, there, there's the, the picture which I'm gonna put on the, um, the post, uh, from the famous Fantastic Mysteries publication has a, an, a nice picture of that column of beings fl- flowing into the sky. And underneath it, it has the line from the story that goes with it, which is, it seemed they moved and that they awaited only the great wind which would finally start them a running. And that, that a running thing also ties in with the Wendigo. The Wendigo has the man's the man's foot are on, the man's feet are on fire uh, from the running. Yeah, so they, they travel so fast it destroys their feet, if I remember rightly. Yeah, and he talks about his feet are burning, but he's he's, he's flying through the sky. So um, the only other uh, reason I was thinking that the story might not have been set in in Canada is is that there are sort of more um, traditional canoeing sort of stories that uh, the one that I know uh, that I, is kind of interesting is a more Catholic uh, uh, voyageur sort of um, fur trading uh, story myth mythological story I guess I don't know legend I guess it w- would be the right term for it in which a bunch of uh, voyagers those are the uh, Fur traders who go in, go up the rivers to, uh, uh, buy furs for the, the, the Hudson's Bay Company and the, uh, the Quebecois equivalent, which I was alluding to at the moment. Um, anyways, they, they go up these rivers where very few people have trodden and, um, I think it's Christmas Eve or something and there's a bunch of, uh, voyagers and they, they all want to be home on Christmas Eve and they're sitting around the campfire, um, talking about their desire to be at home with their loved ones back in Quebec and, uh, someone appears around the, the campfire and it's the devil. And the devil says, Oh, you really want to be home? I'll make you a bargain. <laughs> and, um, he says, uh, I'll get you home. But if you, uh, tonight, uh, but if you, if you don't make it by the morning, uh, I get to have you. And the voyagers are all very, uh, into gambling. They love gambling. So they, uh, they strike this bargain and, and the devil gives them the power to canoe through the sky. And so they hop in their canoes and they start paddling and they paddle all the way home before the dawn comes up. Um, and I thought that was just, a, it's, a, you know, that, that's one of those ones that's a, definitely a legend, not a myth <laughs> in the sense that I don't think canoes normally go through this guy. <laughs> well, it's better than what happens on canoes in deliverance. Oh, yes. <laughs> Much better. Um, the other thing, the other thing I was wondering is, um, traditionally these, these story, I think, I think when the Wendigo is set in a, um, isn't I think that one is set uh at a logging camp 
or there was some reason for them to be out there other than for uh, recreation. And I think it's curious that both the Hodgson story uh, that starts sort of similarly set in Ireland, the one we talked about before, um, the house on the borderlands, mm-hmm. um, those guys are on vacation and they're just traveling through nature for fun. And that seems to be the case here, too. These guys are not, you know, they, they travel around up and down rivers because they like to, not because they're going somewhere or not because they're they need to get somewhere to do a job. And I think that that's a sort of a curious, curious sort of, is that like who the audience is that they, they're, they're, they're sort of upper class people with lots of leisure time. <laughs> is, that who, is that why it's like that rather than uh logging camp guys who have to get to a job and they maybe don't read that much. So they're not going to read this story. <laughs> well, the period like Blackwood and Hodgson were both writing, it was, it was the age of what P.G. Woodhouse called the drones, of where there was lots of um, middle and upper class young men who they were usually the second or third sons. Um, they had a lot of money and no idea what to do with their lives. And they just yeah, traveled around quite a lot. Um, <laughs> you know, went and saw the world. It was kind of the last gasp of um, what used to be called the Grand Tour. Right. Of where the nobility used to send their their sons off on a, a tour of Europe to educate them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that that's got to be some sort of... Uh, I mean, I think we see this in other... Uh, m- maybe it's in movies today where a bunch of kids go on vacation and then bad things happen. Um, usually it's a serial killer or something like that. But the, the idea of it being leisure uh, that drives the people into these far places is sort of a different theme than the, uh, I guess, like, I, I'm thinking of a movie like uh, Alien, right? Those guys aren't there because they're just hopping around to planets. They're there because they're truck drivers, right? They're, mm-hmm. they're there hauling oil or whatever it is they're hauling from, place to, from planet to planet. Um, and they sort of get stuck there, not because they, they want to go, but because they're, they're forced to go. Um, and that gives it a different feel. Than sort of the you know the guys who are doing it in the same sense that I guess in a movie like uh, I th- didn't Jim Moon didn't you start this uh, didn't you tweet something like you gr- tweeted groovy <laughs> <laughs> and I thought oh that's the line from <laughs> Evil Dead right yes, yes yeah and Evil Dead is is they they don't go up there because they have to they go up there because they they you know they want to. There's this sort of the punishment of the recreation, the punishment of of being idle. Well, that does that is actually in the Willows because um, they've just about got away with it, and then the narrator goes, "Oh, you foolish Swede, you stupid pagan and idolater!" And he's like, "Why do you say that? That annoyed them." <laughs> and it is that kind of idea of that, so the reckless youth venturing into places without the proper respect for it that brings down the doom upon them. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, in, in House on the Borderland, they're two young chaps off looking for good fishing. Mm-hmm. Um, in Evil Dead, say it's a, they're off to the now archetypal cabin in the woods that we've seen in a whole slew of films in between now and then and, well, the film Cabin in the Woods. <laughs> right. And, and there, there is the sense of the punishment of the 
of the transgressors, right? Mm. In the, 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 they call it the rules or something, where if you go into the cabin of, in the woods, if you're the if you're the promiscuous blonde, you're definitely gonna go. You're gonna <laughs> go first. Um, and then there's the subversion of those rules, but the rules are there. I think that they they're developing some sort of um, feeling about what place, what is proper in society. You know, you, the the Puritan work ethic is much stronger in some places than others. Mm. But the idea that you have to work hard um, is important, and and sort of you can find moral failing in people who who, you know, sleep all day and uh, go on vacation every month. Um, I'm not sure that that's all in here, but that's what it made me think of, at least a little bit. I think there is that element to the Willows that, as I say, is kind of what seals their doom and what attracts the entities isn't perhaps most their actions, it is their attitude, it is their thoughts mm. and their, their feelings mm. that that spur events along. Excellent. Mirko, any closing thoughts? Um, yeah, go and get the book. <laughs> 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 no doubt, because um, we, we here don't have any Algernon Blackwood uh, available. Yeah, it's hard to get them. I, I went to yeah. the bookstore, there's nothing there. Yeah. You have to go on Amazon and find a I'm not even sure there's anything in print, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. I, I didn't. I didn't see anything that like was just Algernon Blackwood in print that wasn't, you know, print on demand or something. Okay. I was hoping for maybe Mr. Jim Moon can put out uh, some Algernon Blackwood in another uh, of his his new books with illustrations, please. Well, yes, indeed. I mean, there, I mean, there used to be because um, I had it at my local library at a quite a young age. There was a huge brick of, well not a brick of a book, it was like a slab of a book of the complete weird fiction of Algernon Blackwood and it must have been about four inches thick um, I, did, I didn't really get through it, I must confess as I was at the age of 11 I was a bit young for um, Blackwood sophistication and also it's kind of when you've got a writer of mainly short stories they're best enjoyed in short doses otherwise yes. once you read about 10 you start going this is all getting starting to sound the same to me <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> which you know that's a failing of any short story writer be it Lovecraft or Conan Doyle if once you read more than five in, a, in one stretch it's time to put the book down otherwise you won't really enjoy the others this has been the SFF audio podcast Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.